Welcome to episode 18 of Accessible Finance, where we demystify personal financial topics and answer your questions. So you leave saying, I get it now. I'm Eric Jones. And I'm Rachel Jones. Let's dive in. All right, Eric. So we had a listener request to go through some of the common um, money myths. Um, So I have a list of some of them here. So we'll kind of go item by item, discuss them, decide, um, do we, like, are they indeed myths? Are there, is there some truth to it? Where do we kind of land on this? This sounds fun. Okay. Ready? Sure. So question number one is a not super like a technical one. Uh, The more money I have, the happier I'll be. Okay. Okay. Myth or no myth? That seems pretty true to a large extent. I'm with, I'm I'm in. No, no, not. Yeah. That's so cynical. I I think it's hard. Okay, sure. But it's hard to be unhappy when you're like hanging out in Vail Village. No, disagree. All winter. Disagree. I would say that it's easy to be unhappy with money, uh, but it's harder to be happy without it. Yeah, I can, get by, I can get behind that. Not that it's easy to be happy with it. I don't uh, think that that's true. It, I think it enhances. I, I think it certainly enhances No, happiness. I think you fall into the rat race that you typically will fall into just in your life where- um, Me you're for the, Yeah, where you, no, where you look for the next best thing. Oh, rude. Okay. You know what I mean? Right. Like the thing is like when you, when you personally get something you want, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, what's next? That's correct. Like, the goalposts never, have to move. Correct. Always. So then the more money you have will never change that. You're no. never going to be content with what you have. Correct. Life. But it's still objectively fun to like ski down a mountain. And yet. You think I just need big, you just need bigger and better mountains. Correct. I think okay. that you're going to start looking to go to like. But if you have infinite dollars, then you can go find them, right? And maybe. then go to the Southern Hemisphere so you can increase the number of days on mountain. Then you're just, just going to be by yourself. Can we just talk about skiing? <laughs> no, the no absolutely not. <laughs> okay. So that's a philosophical one, right? Um, but okay. Money myth number two. I don't need to save for retirement now. I'm young. Okay, sure. This one in this one kind of this kind of ignores compound interest and its yeah. impact on savings. So, uh, unfortunately, the best time to be saving is immediately when you enter the workforce, or yesterday, I guess, is one way to put it. But you you want to save as early and often as you can because that money is going to have the most number of years or periods to compound, mm-hmm. which is going to have the most substantial impact on your end of uh you know in, or beginning of retirement, I guess. Savings. Right. So the earlier you are planning for retirement, the better off you are. The more compounding. So I think we agree on this one that this is indeed a myth. Correct. You you absolutely do. It's incredibly short-sighted to try to save it for later. Um, All right. Money myth number three. Credit cards bring debt, so I don't need to get one. Um, Right. So just completely discarding the fact that they are incredibly convenient. Yeah. um, You're going to get like 2% or so cash back. Right, like when we use the city double cash. Yes, they they have a lot. Two percent cash yes. back. There's you know there, there's a number of, of credit cards you can use. It'll give you some kind of reward for doing so. And as long as you're a responsible person, that, well, that's what it is. I think it really goes boils down to credit cards bring debt. That does not have to be the case. No, you bring debt. The credit cards just so <laughs> make it a lot easier. <laughs> right? They're the enabler. <laughs> yeah, yes. you're poor decision making. Okay. Bring debt. So, like, what I what we would say to clients that's that's maybe that was not. Well, I mean, I think that's uh, exactly so, correct, though. Like, if the human candid. habits that bring the debt, the mm-hmm. credit card just allows you to have it. <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> um, what we would say is, you don't 
have to spend more money than you have in your bank account, like your checking account. Nobody's making you do that. And we would argue <laughs> we, that you should not really, do that whether or not never you never want you to do that. Right. We're not, yes. you, you can do that whether or not you have a credit card. We're arguing sure. that like you should just not do that, right? Like if I have 10K in my checking account mm -hmm. and then my credit card balance is like, I don't know, let's say it's, let's say it's $9,000. I don't want to go make a purchase that's over a thousand dollars. Really, I shouldn't have been in this part. I shouldn't. No, be this you deep. shouldn't be there. But I also think that that speaks to an awareness that we really discuss with our clients. Like cash flow analysis is super important, so you mm -hmm. know what's coming in, what's going out. Um, a lot of times, we find that people genuinely think that they have uh, their finger on the pulse without actually. Most people don't. Let's be real. Like, yeah. <laughs> do I budget? Yeah. It's tedious. Yeah. It takes you like. Maybe if you're super fast, like, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes a month, if you're less fast, an hour. <laughs> but also if your information is not organized, it can be far more convoluted than that. And the reality is that like watching movies with your kids or going to a little league game yeah. or playing video games or whatever your Dude, favorite pastime is. Reddit. Yeah. But that's yeah. far more appealing than sitting down and doing your budget. Right. The opportunity cost is real. Yeah. For so sure. the credit cards don't have to bring No, debt. they do not bring debt. You do. Um, Okay. Myth number four, if I have enough money, I don't even need to do that. I don't have to budget and save. Uh, what are we talking? We're talking, I guess I, I'm, I'm a little bit confused as to who we're talking about. Are we talking about a like trust fund child that has like 80 million banks? And Inch. yeah, they so, don't have to budget and they could probably do what so they want. You could be. But I think the norm is that particularly if you have... um somebody who's out of grad school or they've just finished yeah, high earners. Correct. So super high earners. We're yes. earning three, 400, 500K. Correct. And so and we'll always be fine. You didn't start there. Correct. You're now suddenly there. Yeah. The huge increase in your income could easily lead one to be, you know, persuaded that they don't need a budget because they make so much more than they did last time. Right. And I think that there is this Yeah. So false that's objectively idea. incorrect. Right. For sure. And I think there's this false idea that like, you know, we ask our clients this a lot of like, what do you think would change if you had all the money in the world? And I think a lot of times, um, you know, the answer is, well, not much would change. Like, I'm happy with my life. I mean, I, I might take this vacation. I might do this. So there are ideas of, you know, one-offs or um, things like that that people would want to do. But overall, I think that we tend to believe that our spending habits would remain pretty stationary regardless of um, jumps in income. We might get a slightly nicer house. We might get a car. Um, but as far as the regular monthly ins and outs, I mm -hmm. think that we tend to falsely Correct. believe that our lifestyle wouldn't change. So two things to point out. One, you're going to get more benefit from tax deferral when you're making these amounts of dollars. Mm -hmm. when you're making the, the higher the income, the higher the tax bracket, yeah. the larger the benefit from deferring that taxation until later in life when you will, might maybe be retired and we're may, would be in a lower bracket. Yeah. Also, there's a number of there's a number of approaches to this question, but we've seen people blow through 20k a month budgets. Easy. You know what I mean? Like, like just yeah, like just bat of an eye. So I mean, you can just if if you're not keeping track of anything and you're just spending indiscriminately and trying to keep up with everyone else in your field that's doing the same, you can quite easily get yourself underwater. Forget saving. You might just blow through your dollars where you're you don't have anything. You yes. know what I mean? Like so, you can pretty easily get over your head if you're not budgeting at all. If you have Correct. no idea what's going on, it's very easy to get. I actually, I remember growing up with um, a really close friend whose parents were in that range. Like they were high earners. They ended up starting to upgrade house after house after house, and before they knew it, they were well underwater. Had to sell their. I mean, it's just the lifestyle bloat that came with the mm -hmm. the income was. 
larger than the income growth was. Yeah. Um, so I like that. I think that's good. I think that potentially the the argument could be that if you suddenly have more money, maybe you don't have to be quite as granular about your budget. You know, maybe you're not having to 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 make sure that uh, you know you have enough budgeted for your eating category. You may have a bit more flexibility in the categories, but to say that you don't need to know where your funds are would be misguided. Irresponsible. I agree. Um, all right, myth uh, number whatever we're on now. Um, I need at least, (laughs) I've been scrolling all over the place. I think we're five. Uh, I need at least three months of income in my emergency savings. That's that's probably true. Yeah. Um, I think the elaboration on this one states that um, 49% of Americans have said they cannot afford a surprise bill of $400. Um, That would suggest that 49% of America, if not more, does not have three months of savings in their account. I mean, that that Um, hits you in the feels. That feels kind of bad, right? Like That's got to be rough, right? Like I I would say it's hard for those kinds of people living in those circumstances to be truly happy or to be as happy as people that are not living in those circumstances. Bringing it back to number one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I think that's that's brutal. Um, For sure. To their point, yes, try to save as much as you can, even if you can't immediately hit three months. Like nobody started it immediately three months. Correct. And that's exactly the point being made is that I need at least three months of income um, may lead some to say, well, I'm never going to hit that. So screw it. Right. Right. I think that's a pretty poor mindset. and this is saying like even pulling 25 dollars a week or a month is better than nothing agree um okay um number whatever the, six all right okay. i don't know i'm just i'm scrolling through I'm skipping some of the ones i am uh the rich live in big houses drive nice cars and wear the most expensive clothes right so uh, i was just talking about this today uh, morgan housel in his book the psychology of money talks about this and he likes to make the distinction between rich and wealthy and uh are riches and wealth and he says that riches are what people can see and wealth is what you have um and he give he, one of the examples that they like to talk to about this is i think i think it was a janitor living in maybe new york or something like that like a single one bedroom apartment um nobody knew he had anything and then this person died and left a million plus to charity um and people were just blown away that this guy could have a million dollars. So a lot of a lot of times you would be kind of surprised at mm-hmm. who might actually have the wealth because it's not the people that you might, you know, expect driving the, the newest Mercedes or whatever, you know, foreign Correct. cars. Sometimes the people who are flashy on the outside have a pretty large uh, credit card bill behind that. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. But if you're able to live it, and this is this is part of the, the thing we talk about, when we're talking about retirement savings as well is the lower your expenses, the more you're able to save today and the less you'll need in retirement yeah. to fund, you, the less you'll, nest egg you'll need, the low, the smaller your nest egg can be to fund your uh, your expenses, right? Because you're used to living meagerly or within your well within your means. Yes. Does that make sense? I think that's one of the most interesting levers that we discuss with clients is saying like, okay, what if we took your current monthly expenditures and reduced it by $100? Right. We're not even talking huge percentages, but- if you are maintaining that with your inflation adjusted dollars into retirement, uh-huh. the end result of what they have is significant. It has very, very right. large and measurable impacts on so the So what you're spending, I mean, that's such a sensitive. Uh, Correct. Yeah. But it's certainly impactful. Um, so that actually leads into our next one. If I have more money, I will have more security. And so it goes on to kind of delete like differentiate between the person who's won the lottery and is spending it all on traveling around the world versus the person who um, is 
consistently contributing to their employer's 401k plan, snagging the company match. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think you answered really well when you were specifying the difference between riches and wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So this is a really important one. We were just talking about this, right? Um, it's normal to have a lot of debt. And so it specifies that 77% of American household or households have some kind of consumer debt. Um, but then it does go on to discuss that not all debt is created equal. Sure. I wonder if that's just consumer debt. When I think of consumer debt, I think credit card debt. Yeah. I would uh, imagine that it's far higher than 77. We're talking everything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if we're talking just consumer debt, I mean, I guess technically I have consumer debt right now because mm-hmm. my credit card bill has like, I don't know, a $500 unpaid balance, which, you know, it would pay off every time it gets to a thousand or something. But the idea is that like, I think everybody is unpaid or going to have some amount unpaid on their credit card. But yeah. the idea, a lot of it is, I don't, I don't think it's normal at all. I don't think most people, if it is, to the extent that it is, it should not be. I think it's normal it's to have that. I bad. don't think it's normal to have a lot of debt. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's um, going to have some credit card balance that you ideally should pay off every month. We would say to pretty much everybody, I would say to everybody that I interact with, um, that if you have a credit card balance that is going unpaid month to month, either due to your inability or lack of desire to pay it, you should not have right. a credit card. I mean, those like, credit card companies love the people who pay that minimum. Right. You're giving them interest balance. payments that are astronomical, yeah. you know, 20 plus percent APR for no reason. Like you don't need to do Well, that. and that brings us to the fact we were just talking about how not all debt is created equal. Um, if you're taking on various debt without looking at the difference in the interest rates, I, I mean. For sure. Like if you have a mortgage where the interest rate is lower than what you're going to be able to get in like a money market fund or something yes. like that you should be in no rush to right right if you, yeah if you got your mortgage pre-covid when when you were in the three percent range yeah like you're, you're good congratulations yeah, sit, sit on <laughs> yeah, that. exactly don't make extra payments on that you can go and get five percent in a money market and right make now. the two percent difference exactly. exactly make pocket the difference less taxes but yeah it still counts um so then this myth says i should avoid talking about my money problems with others talking about money issues can seem really taboo mm. Um, I think it depends on who the others are right. and how comfortable you are. Yeah. Um, They're going to shame you. Then yeah, don't talk to right. them. Right. We're not even necessarily like, I think that, that you know, I, we're not saying like, Hey, at the Thanksgiving dinner table, say, Hey guys, like, here's my hat. Give, give me some funds. Sure. But, um, I think that in our profession, we tend to see that a lot with just, it's an uncomfortable conversation. It take. is. Definitely is. Um, and so being able to talk to um, not just financial professionals, but people in your life who you trust, um, you know, may have some sound advice or recommendations, um, you know, to help there. Yeah, I agree. The only, the only point that I would make is try to talk to people that are in somewhat even same ballpark financial. No, agreed, too. agreed. Because I've seen some conversations that transpire. Don't blindly take your friends, yeah, colleagues, or like bosses and employees and stuff. And you know, the the boss will leave with the problems of like, oh man, could you believe that this bill was was fifteen k that I had to pay for my like you know extra yeah. couple sprinklers for my golf yeah, course? You know what I mean, like my maintenance sure. on my pool or remodeling see, my social awareness is important at yeah. this time. Um, being the tone deaf person in the room is not great. Um, but there are also like uh, nonprofit organizations, like they have credit counseling organizations and things like that. So looking at different resources to help is certainly better than just sitting and hoping it goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Okay, the next myth. I need to be rich in order to invest. Right. Completely incorrect. Mm -hmm. um, no, definitely not. Everyone can invest and should invest. And uh, one, one point to make here, because uh, I've, I've gotten this a bit lately, is so I've said this to people like, okay, so we're going to use a 529 account. Um, and and then we'll talk about, you know, where to put those funds yeah. within the 529. Yeah. Like, well, what do you mean? And you just said we're going to use a 529 account. And I was like, right, right, right. And they're like, well, that's the investment, the 529 account. And I'm like, no, 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 no. There's like a bunch of options within that account. Right. Okay. So we've got to pick one or many of those options and decide on our allocation among those options. So yeah. anyway, yes, you can absolutely, um, you, you can and should invest well before you're rich. And that's kind of how you get there. Um, and then when you are investing, just be aware that account type is not an investment. Yeah. Right. It basically sense? tells the government how to treat the money. Yes. But it doesn't say where to put the money in yes. the meantime. It has a lot to do with tax status and very little to do with the actual like expected return or Correct. Risk or so else. you may have similar options in a traditional 401k um, or traditional IRA um, versus a Roth versus a 529 plan versus your own brokerage account. Like mm -hmm. you can enter the market in a variety of ways in all of those accounts, even though they're vastly different from one another. Mm -hmm. Um, and you were saying, you know, investing in the market is, is one of the, uh, you know, best ways to see returns on the money. And so this says at the start of 2022, the annualized 10 year return for the S and P 500 was 15.43%. That is outlandishly high, by the way, that's an outlier. So I would have always going to be that high. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I was going to, uh, so we're, we're talking it hasn't 10. Been that high. It's been closer to 12, but even historically moving forward, we don't know if it can be that high. The idea though is. It should be in high single digits going forward. But even you're talking high single digits, if you're talking eight, nine, sure. you're still beating the rate at your, you know, mortgage in theory, right? You're beating, especially sure. if you're in that. Well, I mean, if you locked it in a while ago, yeah, now mortgage rates are at eight. Well, yeah. So then you would be there. Um, but the idea, right, is that if. Um, invest early, invest often, and over time, the compounding of that growth will be able to fund your goals. Correct. Because then it will just continue growing. And then again, the different types of accounts would determine how it's taxed at the point in time. Exactly. Um, so here's another myth um, or a proposed myth. I need to work until 65 in order to retire. No, you can do your, um, you can actually just do, you know, a bunch of math. You can do user time or calculators online or, you know, consult with a financial professional, but no, you need to work until you have enough money to fund your retirement or fund your spending. When that happens, I mean, you can be in your 40s or 50s, whenever you have the dollars that you can safely withdraw um, a rate that you're comfortable with. Um, maybe like it, it's the rate's going to be lower, like the withdrawal rate that you can take on, you know, your nest egg will be lower the earlier you retire. What that means is if I have, you know, two million, let's say uh, for every million dollars I have, you can take maybe 2% out if you retire really early, let's say like 45 mm -hmm. or so, okay? Um, or 40 or 45, might be I can only take 2% out. So that means I can only get $20,000 pulling from my million dollar portfolio if I'm retiring that early. Whereas if I retire when I'm 65 or 70, I can ease, I, I could take a lot closer to 4% out, likely given, like you look at the software, so then you might be able to take $40,000 a year on that same million dollars. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So the earlier you are, the less money you're going to be able to pull from it immediately. And you're going to have to worry a significant amount about sequence of return risk and things like that, Correct. which is the concept that, or the notion that if you take a ton of dollars, like if the market goes down when you need the money and you have to pull a bunch more of money out, 
then that equates to more shares pulled out. So you'll lose more of your actual investment. You'll lose more in number of shares, and that's really bad for your portfolio over time. Um, and there are ways to hedge against that. You know, have a, have a few years that you can draw from in those uh, in those times, and just have a, a bond allocation, uh, particularly short term, that's going to be less volatile mm-hmm. during those times, so that you can draw from that as opposed to having to rip your equities out when they could be suffering. Right. Those again, knowledge is power. I have a few more. What? All right. Just give me the wrap it up sign, y'all. Yeah, wrap it. But up. I have no. I have a few good ones. It's not yeah. much, but. Um, and I, this one I think is important because we've all now heard, um, you know, imagine if you gave up your monthly, I mean, your daily coffee, um, how impactful it can be. And to say that it's not impactful would be incorrect. But I think that we've now gotten to the point where people are like, if I give up my daily Starbucks and I make my pot of coffee here, um, it'll change my world. Yeah. Um, and so what are we talking? $5 a day, 30 days, $150 a month. Like- correct. But we're losing sight of that while making other purchases yeah. that aren't congruent. 10% of car payments on a Correct. $80,000. Um, so you don't have to be extreme and austere in one area while being ridiculous in another. Right, no, so big picture. Sacrificing, if you like your coffee, drink your coffee. Exactly. So sacrificing the small expenses that bring you joy in lieu of a large purchase um, that is not as financially savvy is... Right, it's just, all about living within your means, you know? Correct. Um, so the next one is um, that uh, financial advice always has your best uh, interests at heart. There's a misconception that um, every financial advisor is a fiduciary, says George Kinder. Um, I know we've talked about this prior. George Kinder's great. Yeah. Um, So just to be clear, right, the fiduciary has a legal duty to put your economic and financial interests ahead of Mm -hmm. their own. So... Anybody, as you've said, can call themselves a financial advisor, mm-hmm. um, but not everybody who calls themselves a financial advisor is legally obligated to actually do the things for you. Yeah, that's, that is correct, <laughs> so, unfortunately. Um, um, yeah, two things we would say if you're going to work with any financial professional, yeah, ask them if they are a fiduciary and if they're acting as a fiduciary at all times, um, and then ask them how they're getting paid. Be very clear that you understand exactly how you are paying them. I've heard many times. We've heard many times people come in. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't actually think we pay them. I don't. I don't. I don't know how they get paid because I. I, I know we don't pay them. And then you know you show them the place on their statement that the fees are deducted, or you show them how like the commissions work on their insurance policies, and you know people just don't really get it. And the finance industry, look, hey, mea culpa, like the, our industry does not make it clear. They right. try it's to make not it like doc. I think that we tend to equate them to other professionals. Like lawyers have a legal obligation to be work in the best interest of their yeah. clients. Doctors have a legal obligation to work in the best interest of their of their patients. I will say though that doctor billing is like a complete joke. And well, you have no idea when you're going to doctor's office what you're going to pay. And that's a very similar experience that we should not Correct. be trying to create. So we don't have to. So um, ask your professional that you're working with how much they're you know, you're, you're going to be paying for their services. And then ask them if, if they are fiduciary. And actually going to act in your best interest. Correct. Also make sure that the financial incentives align. Does that make sense? Like make sure that if they're commissioned, like really it's a matter of how much you trust the person. Yeah. Like I'm not going to say that all people that charge for commission are bad. Like I know some very, very good planners that do happen to sell insurance and they do get paid on commission. I would just make sure that you understand, like that you trust that person. Like if they're, I would say that the bar maybe, maybe is marginally higher, but like you could find pretty bad. I mean, maybe, 
<laughs> maybe my colleagues won't like me to say for saying this, but you can find bad fee-only planners. You can find bad commission planners. I would say the bar is marginally hot, should be marginally higher for commission just because it's it, the incentive structure for them is We're to sell you a larger policy, yes, right? Like correct. if I'm only operating on commission, I'm incentivized to sell the largest possible like mm -hmm. policy, whether it's whole life or whatever. I'm going to try to sell you. If you're like, oh, you know, maybe I need 500,000. Maybe I'm just going to, eh, why not mm -hmm. just a million? When it's front-loaded reward for them. Correct. Whereas if you're working with somebody who's fee-only, it's an ongoing relationship where mm -hmm. at all points in time, their right. benefit is... But the whole the benefit. whole process is a matter of trust. So make sure that you trust the individual you're working with. Make sure you know how they're getting paid and make sure they're acting as a fiduciary. Um, all right. And so then our last one to close it out is that um, hiring an advisor only benefits the wealthy. No, I don't think that's true. I, I, I don't think that's true at all. I think I, I actually think it might be least advantageous for the wealthy because I think they generally are going to have. It's kind of like we talked about with budgets. There's a bit more wiggle room for our more wealthy. Um... Yeah, they're not operating at the margins quite as much. Correct. And also, I'm not going to say that all the wealthy are financially savvy or anything like that, but they've typically had more exposure to um, to markets and investing. Like, hmm. I mean, a lot of times if you're wealthy, you either built it up. It's passed down. Yeah, yeah, a lot of times it's, it's it's your parents that have done this, and usually they will have instilled some strategies um, in their offspring. So they might, you know, if they're going to impart their investment philosophy. And a lot of what the wealthy tend to get wrapped up in is the just the investment management component. Yeah. So the financial planning is the 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 whole picture, right? We're talking insurance planning, estate planning, tax planning, cash flow and budgeting, um, investment planning, retirement planning, right? So that contrasts with the only investment planning, which is we have the smartest people in the room. We're making the best decisions with your portfolio and we're going to generate the highest rate of return for you. Correct. Does that make sense? And so the thing is, regardless of what your net worth is, working with a financial professional, the goal is to eliminate costly mistakes and then take advantage of sure wins that no person not in the industry could possibly be expected to just know. On Correct. Way. And um, just a real quick peek behind the curtain. Most of those wins are in value is going to be, are going to be created from tax planning. Yeah. They're going to have some impact on the U S tax law. That's yeah. just how it is. Like that's, Absolutely. that's how it is. So, right. You're going to want to know where to invest, uh, where to invest, meaning like what account type, where you should be Correct. saving for retirement, for example, whether it should be a Roth, should be a traditional, should you be doing Roth mm -hmm. conversions? You know, like Correct. how can I control my tax rates? Like all of which theoretically this? could be invested in the same funds. Correct. It's just exactly. 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 Same investment planning. Right. Very different tax planning. Right. Exactly. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed today's show, please follow and review. And if you have any topics you'd like discussed or financial problems you'd like solved, reach out to us at podcast at equilibriumfp.com or visit our website at equilibriumfp.com. Until next time. Thanks, guys.